This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution states Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. But the courts have determined the right of free speech is not absolute. The degree to which the speech of certain people, specifically public school students, may be controlled is the essential issue being considered in the case Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, for which the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on April 28th. This case considers when and where a school may limit the speech of a student when they are off the school grounds and not engaged in school activity. This case is not merely relevant for the 50 million public school students, their families, and their schools, but also to the broader society in which the ubiquity of social media has blurred the lines of time and place. My guest today is Thomas Berry, a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. He is also managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Attorney Berry is a co-author of Cato's Amicus Curie Brief, filed in the Supreme Court, and joined by the Pacific Law Foundation and satirist P.J. O'Rourke. Before joining Cato, he was an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation and clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. Mr. Berry holds a JD from Stanford Law School, where he was a senior editor on the Stanford Law and Policy Review and a Bradley Student Fellow in the Stanford Constitutional Law Center. Attorney Berry will share with us his views on the details of the case and its First Amendment implications for our future. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Institute's Tommy Berry. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Cato Institute's research fellow, Tommy Berry. Tommy, welcome to Hubwonk. Thank you for having me. All right, we're discussing the case Mahanoy Area School District versus BL, the day after the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case. Now, before we get into the details, uh, let's, for the benefit of our listeners, let's uh, cover the basic facts in the case. Sure. So I'll, I'll, in case you have any sensitive listeners, I'll give a Bowdlerized version just for politeness sake. Uh, a high, rising high school sophomore it tries out for the cheerleading squad at her high school in uh, Pennsylvania. She doesn't make it and she's upset and she's stressing about finals near the end of her freshman year. So she's out with a, a friend and she pulls out Snapchat and they, uh, as, as teens do, and she takes a selfie and flips the bird. And on Snapchat, you can send photos with a caption. And the polite version of the caption was basically F cheer, F school, F finals, F everything. Uh, so clearly she was in a not very polite mood. Um, the way Snapchat works is it's sort of like Facebook, but more ethereal. It's sent to all of your friends, uh, but it's only visible for 24 hours unless you take a screenshot. Uh, well, somebody did. Uh, evidently and through some chain of uh, snitching it wound its way into uh, school administrators who were not happy about that and as punishment they uh, banned her from the varsity so the or, uh, or sorry the junior varsity cheer squad one one rung down for a full year which was uh, pretty severe for someone who's trying to rise her way through the ranks of the cheer squad um, she, through her parents, uh, she sues the school district saying that this is a violation of her First Amendment rights because a public school is still an arm of the state. 
Um, and both the district court and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, Pennsylvania is within, uh, rule in her favor. And they say that this violated the First Amendment. And specifically, the way that the reasoning of the Third Circuit was rather important. The Third Circuit looked to the seminal student public school student speech case, which was called Tinker versus Des Moines in 1969. That's well known as the so-called Black Armbands case. It was a group of public high school students who wore black armbands to protest the Vietnam War. It's kind of a mixed case for free speech. The result was a victory for the students and free speech, but Tinker case had some language in it that opened the door to regulation. It said, this wasn't, can't, can't ban the black armbands because it didn't cause a substantial disruption in the school. But if something does cause a substantial disruption, uh, then uh, regulation could be allowed, could be permissible under the First Amendment. So that opened the door. And unfortunately, that door has gotten wider and wider to schools sort of saying, oh, well, this this T-shirt, if someone wears this political T-shirt, it might cause a ruckus, um, you know, and so we can ban it. And that was basically the school's theory. Third Circuit says we're not going to decide whether this caused a ruckus, whether this caused a substantial disruption. We're going to create a bright line rule test that that tinker reasoning uh, does not apply for outside the school environment. She would, this was a weekend. This was on her phone. She was at a convenience store. Uh, she was not in school. And so the justification for keeping school order um, just doesn't apply here. You, it's too attenuated to say, well, it found its way back to school and caused a disruption. Um, so it was really a legal rather than fact-bound dispute. And that's the question. Whenever you appeal to the Supreme Court, you have to succinctly phrase the question presented. And that's what the school said. Um, the question presented is, does Tinker, which allows school to re uh, regulate speech if it causes a substantial disruption, does Tinker apply to off-campus speech? Um, and that's that's the posture in which the Supreme Court took the case. So you're anticipating my next question, which is, oh, we have roughly 50 million uh, public school students. Uh, many use off-color language on, on social media. And... Um, and yet this one wound up in the Supreme Court. Why did this one? Is it, is it how neat the case was? How, how sort of uh, um, bright lines uh, that framed it? Uh, is that why it's at the Supreme Court? Or is there something special about this particular issue? I think it is uh, the way the lower court framed it. The Third Circuit was the first court to say categorically that Tinker does not apply at all off campus. Every, every other court of appeals that's looked at this issue has been a bit fuzzier, has basically said, well, um, we think school, some test applies off campus. Maybe we need to be a bit stricter. Maybe we need to say tinker substantial disruption plus some sort of targeting rule at the school. So say like, you know, um, a topic, it has to be speech about the school. You can't just punish someone for political speech that winds its way back to the school. Different circuits have had uh, different different approaches and uh, usually sort of multi-factor balancing tests. Third Circuit was the first to draw this categorical line, uh, basically saying if it's off if it's off campus speech, you, you can't regulate it any more than the government can regulate adult speech. So essentially, First Amendment, if, if you can't be put in jail for saying the F word on Facebook as an adult, um, a public school can't punish you for the for doing the same thing at all. So um, I don't know if this is a, a legally relevant uh, question, but didn't uh, this young lady sign a, a form that said, look, I'm not going to do or say anything that disparages the school, the cheerleading squad, my fellow teammates? Uh, does, does she abrogate or uh, give up any of her rights uh, when, when she signs this document? 
It's a good question. That was one of the uh, questions debated in the lower courts and the court Third Circuit very well could have issued a narrower ruling. Um, there's a whole doctrine about so-called extracurriculars. And uh, there is some a lo- some line of cases that do suggest that extracurriculars are a privilege, not a right. And so they can make greater demands of you in terms of giving up, up your freedoms. Um, the, essentially, when it in the posture it's at at the Supreme Court, I don't think that's going to make a difference just because the Third Circuit didn't rely on it. Now, the thir- the Supreme Court could remand, could well remand and say uh, the categorical rule you draw, Third Circuit, was uh, you went too far. You have to open the door to regulating off-campus speech to some extent, but we're going to let you decide these other issues um, on remand. Um, if that happens, then more nitty-gritty factual questions like did this actually cause a disruption? Um, and what is the legal import of this of the waiver she signed that you mentioned? Those might come into play. Now, uh, you mentioned, um, I, I guess it would be a geography question, which is to say, we, when you're in school, you're in school. When you're out of school, you're out of school. Um, how clearly is that defined? Uh, in other words, uh, uh, if I'm on school grounds, but it's not during the school day, or uh, you know where my question is going. Right. So I think people often use off-campus and on-campus as a shorthand, but it is, for the reasons you mentioned, it's a bit of a misnomer. You wouldn't really think of someone on campus during the weekend as within the school supervision. So it's a little bit wordier, but in uh, our amicus brief and others prefer uh, school-supervised environment versus non-school-supervised environment. So what that means, for example, is if you're on a field trip where uh, the school has taken you to the museum or whatever, that's plausibly, you know, within school hours, that's plausibly within school. You're still expected to be at a certain place at a certain time um, and not disrupt the the learning experience. Um, on, on the other hand, I, I think there's a strong argument, for example, a, a kid is on her phone technically during school hours, but she just posts something to Facebook and doesn't say it out loud in front of any of her friends. Even though she's standing on campus, I think you could make a strong argument that that speech she's sending out isn't within the campus environment. It's not really the same thing as her standing up in the middle of algebra class and yelling whatever she posted on Facebook because um, her fellow students aren't a captive audience. Um, So the way I personally would draw the line is whether your fellow students are a captive audience to the speech that you're that you're making. In other words, is it either are you either saying or displaying something that's in their faces at an event that you're all required to be by virtue of the fact that you're public school students? So, in other words, if they must see it, it would be uh, controlled if they can see it, perhaps not. Right. Um, given the uh, ubiquity of uh, social media and the nature of its uh, use, it, it kind of blurs the lines between time and place. You mentioned one case where you're posting out of the school while you're in it. Certainly, you could post outside the school and have it sort of read in so into the school. So, it's a Saturday. I post a you know an unpleasant uh, uh, Facebook post or tweet or snap, uh, and it's read on Monday morning in uh, biology class. Um, how is it that you can imagine? Uh, exporting inappropriate material sort of uh, releases you from uh, the burden of a school regulation, but importing it in doesn't. I think it's a, it's a good question. I think you have to go to the fundamentals of why do we allow schools greater leeway um, than the government to regulate speech than the government in general, just regulating citizens. Um, and I think the narrow justification for it is school school functionality. 
Uh, and another way of putting it is who should get the blame. In other words, there's a concept in free speech called the heckler's veto, which is that occasionally people say offensive things um, or things that some find offensive and it causes a fight, a riot, a disruption, whatever. Who do you really blame for that? Do you stop the speaker? Do you say your speech uh, caused this person to take offense and caused a ruckus, so we're going to punish the speech? Or do you punish the person who caused the ruckus? Um, and I think the argument towards those who lean against regulation of off-campus speech is if a student reads the the tweet or the Facebook post on Monday morning in the middle of algebra class, there's no need for them to be raising it at that in school at that time and place because it wasn't in your face at that time and place. You really should punish the the student who's who's um, choosing to read it and react to it within the school environment. I want to unpack the idea. I think you caught yourself when you talk about disruptive or uh, speech that's perceived to be disruptive. Of course, that requires someone to define what disruptive is. I can understand uh, physical acts, uh, throwing things around or shouting in the middle of a class. How did we get to the point where disruptive uh, a speech, a statement, a plea from a young girl on uh, with her friend uh, into the into the ether about uh, not liking life and, and school and cheering? How did that become disruptive or defined as disruptive? How, who, who decides that? That's a great question. Uh, it's it's really it gets to the heart of objectivity versus subjectivity, and this isn't just a problem for off-campus speech. This is a problem for Tinker itself and on-campus speech. This is really the biggest issue I think in applying Tinker since 1969, which is the court was ambiguous. They said you can regulate something uh, for the purpose of preventing substantial disruption. Well, do you purely have a subjective test, meaning that? It could be the most innocuous thing in the world, but everyone's really thin-skinned at your school and they all react with outrage when you do it. I mean, there's a there's disruption. Reading the words literally, it still caused a disruption. And so one reading of Tinker is if it causes a disruption, you can you can restrict it, no matter whether that's really fair or not. The other reading is uh, you can only restrict the type of speech that would be expected to cause a substantial disruption. So that's a narrower reading of Tinker. And that would align it with other First Amendment values, things like fighting words, which is that you can't ban uh, every type of speech that does cause a fight. You can only ban the type of speech that would be expected to cause a fight, getting in someone's face and spewing an invective at them and saying, come at me or something like that. Um, and that is a more speech protective and I think better bright line rule because it essentially puts the onus on the, on, it tells the speaker in advance what type of, th- or it at least gives guidelines of what types of things are inbounds and out of bounds. Of course, it's impossible to have bright line rules that tell you everything that's inbounds or out of bounds, but we've done a decent job in things like fighting words of, of um, drawing the line between what you can punish and what you what you can't through an iterative process of of actual cases. Now, I want to give a, a fair uh, time for uh, what's clearly the other side of this argument. You 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 were part of a, an amicus brief uh, in support of uh, BL, um, mm-hmm. and uh, but they have some excellent attorneys on the other side arguing in the Supreme Court. Lisa Blatt, um, yes said that Tinker should apply to off-campus because off-campus speech can also cause disruption, particularly when it comes to social media. Quote, time and geography are meaningless when it comes to the internet, Blatt emphasized. Uh, what, what do you say to someone who believes that essentially in this modern times, uh, a student is essentially always at school? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I would interpret that. Sure. And uh, I mean, it's, there's, there's certainly something to be said for it. And in some ways, 
it's ironic uh, that this is coming up in the COVID era where so much of school itself is now happening virtually, right? People are zooming into school often five days a week. And so we have blurred the, to be sure we've blurred the lines, as I said, on campus and off campus doesn't really make sense anymore. We have school supervised and school non-supervised, but you can be in your bedroom and in the middle of algebra class. Um, I would say a few things. One is that uh, Blatt, uh, Ms. Blatt really emphasized the line drawing problem. And I don't think it's as big of an issue as she emphasizes because there are other school speech doctrines where we've pretty successfully drawn that line. So I mentioned Tinker. There are other less well-known school speech cases. There was one specifically about profanity. So it kind of created another category of speech that a school can restrict which is vulgarity and profanity, even if it doesn't cause a substantial disruption. But the court has always been very clear that's in school only. So in other words, you say the F word off campus, but it doesn't cause a substantial disruption. That's never, no one has ever argued that that's regulable by the school. And the key, the key takeaway there is we're already drawing that line that Ms. Blatt yesterday said it's going to be impossible to draw. So um, we're all, and I think the purpose of that line again is captive audience versus not captive audience. So I would say that if the justification for Tinker is more narrowly thought of as what disrupts school because you have a captive audience who can't avoid what you're saying, there is still a distinction between social media and in-person speech. Social People can uh, put on pause either reading or reacting to social media until algebra class is over. So I, I want to get to what the Supremes had to say in their uh, oral arguments uh, and try to figure out what we expect the ruling to be in, in, in the summer. Uh, but before we go there, I, I'm curious, because it, it, this issue is adjacent to issues like cyberbullying. Um, what, what would, would, would this case speak to cyberbullying in any meaningful sense uh, in that, it, to my reckoning, cyberbullying happens primarily off campus, uh, but to fellow classmates who are, you know, you know, through school and then the effects of that cyberbullying is going to follow on to that, that child's education in life. Uh, does this speak to that at all? It, it does. And I think that's the trickiest part of this case is going to be defining the rule. And I think part of what the justices struggled with yesterday in oral argument is that this case was framed as a yes, no question, but almost everyone's arguing it as a what is the standard to set sliding scale question? And by that, I mean, the question presented was, does Tinker apply to off-campus speech? Yes or no. But what both Ms. Blatt and the federal government, as a friend of the court argued yesterday, wasn't really extending the full Tinker rule to off-campus speech. They both, they both were arguing for slightly different versions of Tinker Limited. Um, Ms. Blatt was saying, uh, Tinker is substantial disruption, plus targeted at the school, plus on a topic of concern to the school. Um, that's not that's not Tinker. So I, I was kind of, my, my first reaction after I listened to it was, well, if the question is just does Tinker apply off campus, it should be 9-0-no, because even the people arguing for the school aren't really arguing for Tinker. They're arguing for less. And so I'm not sure how the justices are, whether they're going to just answer yes or no, and then leave it to lower courts to draw the line, or if they're going to try to draw a line themselves. If they try to draw a line themselves, that's the most difficult aspect, is how do you uh, allow problems like bullying to be addressed without um, full-on saying, oh, you can't talk about politics on Facebook because people might get offended in school. 
basically how do you put those on opposite how do you draw a line where those fall on opposite sides um the uh, the lawyer for bl basically argued for a super limited rule again not tinker not really a rule a rule that the court would have to basically come up for especially for off-campus speech that only allows them to regulate bullying or essentially threats of crimes um in our brief of the cato institute we kind of took the most absolutist position which is the school really shouldn't be regulating that any more than the police power would allow you to regulate that for adults. So in other words, if there's harassment or threats that rise to the level of something an adult could be investigated for by uh, police authority, then school can go that far, but perhaps it really should be more of a a police problem. Um, But you don't have to give schools special authority beyond what, what, uh, any arm of the state could do to an adult in terms of investigating those problems. So there's no law that you have to be nice. Uh, and there is a law that says you can't threaten to blow up the school. Right, exactly. Okay. And even an adult could be invest, you know, investigated or punished for a threat, whether true or false. So I want to get into, of course, uh, yesterday's oral arguments. Uh, I read them as a, as a lay, lay person, not, uh, not a uh, constitutional scholar. Um, and of course, the questions that the justices ask give some insight into how they look at the issues at hand in the case. Uh, I know it's only one day on from those arguments. Uh, what were your impressions of uh, the questions as they were posed by the, the various justices? And what insight does that give you into the, what do you think the likely ruling will be? Yes. Well, I think they all, the top line answer is that they all struggled with exactly the line drawing problem we're talking about. They all seemed concerned about bullying, concerned about threats, but they all wanted to make sure that they had a rule that didn't allow you to be punished for talking about posting about Black Lives Matter on Facebook and it's too controversial and you get punished. They all emphasized over and over again, how do we draw, how do we fashion a rule or what do we say to make clear to courts you can't punish students just for political or religious speech that may be controversial. Um, So they're struggling with that. It's very interesting to see the kind of baseline that assumptions the justices differed on that. Justice Breyer had had somewhat the opposite baseline presumption of many of the other justices. He sort of assumed, well, the baseline presumption is schools can regulate speech however they want. Tinker was a Tinker was just a restriction saying no. Uh, for uh, uh, you have to be limited to substantial disruption. Whereas most of the other justices, especially Justice Barrett, said this explicitly. She viewed the baseline presumption as schools cannot regulate speech any more than any typical arm of the state can regulate adult speech, but Tinker carved out an exception that allows it to regulate slightly more than a typical arm of the state. And so it was interesting to see how that, so because of that presumption, they interpreted the question presented somewhat differently. <laughs> Justice Breyer was like, well, Tinker gave you more speech rights. So isn't, is, aren't we thinking of this case kind of backwards? Uh, if Tinker applies off campus, doesn't that give you more speech rights? But he seemed to be alone in, in his way of, of framing that. Um, I think most like, it's, it's hard to predict exactly, and it is, as you mentioned, there are fact-bound issues. If the court wanted to dodge the big picture question, they could do what the third judge on the Third Circuit panel did, which was say, on the record here, her snap did not cause a substantial disruption. So in other words, we don't have to decide the legal issue of whether Tinker ever applies off campus. We can simply assume for the sake of argument that it does 
and hold that in this particular case, her speech was not disruptive. And so it could not be punished even under Tinker. I'm inclined to think they wouldn't have taken the case if they wanted to do that dodge um, just because it, it doesn't really settle much and it doesn't give any guidance to lower courts in the future. And in fact, it would leave the, the Third Circuit ruling standing. Um, hard, hard to say uh, other than that. I think they all were legitimately struggling with it. Was there any, uh, we have nine justices and, uh, um, you know, a, a lot has been made of, of, of left-right divide. Is there any such line in the court now with regard to First Amendment? And, and was that reflected in the questions? Did you see anyone, any sort of bias towards, you know, um, absolute free speech absolutists versus those who, uh, who uh, uh, advocate for more uh, control of, of, of speech out uh, in school or otherwise. Yeah. To some extent, though, it doesn't perfectly map on to ideology. You certainly saw Justice Breyer seemed the most sympathetic to school authority, as I mentioned. You certainly saw Justice Barrett seemed the least sympathetic. But there are some uh, more idiosyncratic views. Justice Thomas has in the past espoused an originalist historical position that under the original understanding of school powers, um, there were essentially no limits on what school, how schools could regulate students. So he has espoused the view that if you go back to the era when the First Amendment was passed, um, public schools essentially were treated as uh, in loco parentis, meaning that they were the parent of the, of the student whenever the student was in their custody. And they could essentially do whatever a parent could do right up to even corporal punishment um, to the student. And so from that originalist perspective, I think Justice Thomas is of the view that the First Amendment just doesn't protect whether you want it to as a libertarian or not, just as a matter of original meaning, the First Amendment does not protect public school students. Um, but I think he is the only person on the court who has who has expressed that view. So it's a little bit of a, of a minority on the court. I think the the center of the court is in some pragmatic zone. Justice Kagan, I thought, asked one of the most important questions, which is, well, let's look at how Tinker has actually been applied. So Ms. Blatt, arguing for the school, said many times, look, you can't even under Tinker, you can't publish, you can't punish just religious speech or political speech. It has to be threatening or it has to be terrorizing. And Justice Kagan said, well, that might be a better Tinker rule, but that's not what we actually see if we look at the cases applying it. We've seen, uh, we mentioned some of these in our in our brief and some are mentioned in BL's brief. There's a case where there was a protest about illegal immigration and people wore a shirt saying we are not illegal. And they would sit and they said, change your shirt. It's too disruptive. Um, it's going to it could cause a fight. And that's that's really the concern. So perhaps the most optimistic view would be that they not only try to decide this off campus speech, but they also clarify Tinker itself, given given um, the uh, kind of the differing views of what does Tinker itself allow that were on display yesterday. In other words, I think it would be fantastic if they said, hey, lower courts, you've been too permissive in applying Tinker um, these past few decades. Uh, Tinker really only allows you to punish objectively disruptive speech, not just political speech that could cause sensitive people to raise a ruckus. You've already made it clear that the, uh, the likely result for from the court, because uh, it's not binary, it's not, yes, uh, this is a good case, no, this is a bad case, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to get an up and down ruling, we're going to get some shade, uh, some color, something mm -hmm. that tells us it's a matter of degree, 
it's not a, a binary outcome. What, what I found troubling about the original facts of the case was that the the young lady had uh, done the snap and it, it it disappears in 24 hours, but someone had saved it and turned it into the coach and ultimately everything followed from that. Um, doesn't this sort of pro- prohibition of speech and ultimately the sanctioning of speech and, and incentivize us to rat on each other and, and in a sense, look for things that we're doing off campus that might uh, get someone in trouble. In other words, uh, we broadly define speech everywhere and we give everyone an incentive to say, look, uh, if you want to smite your uh, enemy, find something outside of school that they shouldn't be doing, get a good picture of it, uh, bring it to us and um, we'll, we'll take care of them. Isn't there a danger of this? Absolutely. And we, we discussed that in our, our brief that was a joint brief from the Cato Institute, Pacific Legal Foundation, and, and PJ O'Rourke. We talk about call-out culture, cancel culture, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's, it's incentivized, uh, or at least it's allowed, um, the more off-campus speech or out of however you want to call it, outside school environment speech, um, you could be potentially punished for. And I think this ties in with this notion of captive audience versus not captive audience. She sent her snap not to, I don't think any of her Snapchat friends were her cheerleading coaches or her cheerleaders. They tend not to be uh, who a teenage girl would want seeing her snaps on social media. They weren't her intended audience. So um, everyone says things in private, in conversations that might be a little offensive to some third party. They're talking behind their back. Okay. Just being realistic. Um, we have sort of a cultural, a cultural norm that that type of thing goes on and, and it's allowed um, because we know different ways to talk when we're, uh, in front of, you know, people that we show respect to, there's no evidence that BL would have yelled the same thing out loud to her cheerleading in front of her whole team and her cheerleading coaches, um, that she said on, on the snap in a moment of what was meant to be just peer to peer, um, frustration venting. And so to the extent that a, uh, disruption can kind of be manufactured by this game of take a screenshot, show it to the coach, and then the coach gets offended, and then the whole cheer team gets offended. Uh, it it does incentivize that. And worst case scenarios, you know, people can incent- intentionally say, "Ooh, here's a way to get back at someone." And it doesn't. It wouldn't even lim- be limited to online speech. It could simply be a th- uh, something uttered in uh, in the privacy of the home or at a, at a at an off campus party or something like that. There would there would essentially be no limits if if you're saying outside the school environment, speech is still uh, within school purview. Okay, we're getting close to the end of our time together. Uh, and I know you say this is a very nuanced decision, but we'll learn what the court decides in the summer. How do you see this ruling going uh, if you're a betting man? Uh, most likely, I would say probably a broad, a, a, a broad coalition of justices trying to fashion a rule that uh, for off-campus speech essentially narrowed to bullying and threats. I think they're, I think they're not going to, they're, they're, they're going to be too concerned about not allowing schools to have that authority, even though, as we argued in our brief, you could make a plausible argument that police, police and other laws already in effect can handle that. I, I don't think the justices are going to go that far, if I'm being honest. I think they're going to carve out a rule that says as explicitly as possible, political, religious speech, can't punish that um, speech that isn't really intended to insult someone or or directly sent to someone can't punish that. Uh, try to come up with a narrow definition of bullying, something like something sent or said directly to someone off campus. 
if they fashion that kind of rule, I don't think you can punish the speech in this fact pattern here because she didn't send it to her cheer coaches. She didn't blast it on an air horn at her at her cheer coach's house off campus. Uh, she meant to just share it with her friends in a moment of frustration. Um, so on on the judgment, I'll predict uh, eight to one in favor of uh, the student with Justice Thomas, the the lone originalist uh, dissenting, saying the school can do whatever it wants. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that's the, all the time we have together. This has been a wonderful conversation. I hope I've been able to keep up it. Uh, um, you know, it, it's very nuanced and I appreciate you uh, uh, sharing those details with me. So Tommy, thank you for being part of Hubwonk. Thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk. In that way, you'll get a new episode every Tuesday at about 11 a.m. If you would like to help others find Hubwonk, it would help if you offer a favorable review or a five-star rating. And of course, it's always helpful to share us with friends. If you have comments or ideas or suggestions for future episode topics, you're welcome to reach out to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.